1: Father God, on this Christ the King Sunday, as we examine these scriptures together, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what it is that you would say to each of us. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be pleasing to you. Amen. My name is Chris Myers. I'm one of the priests here, and I'm so glad that you could join us tonight. I know some of you are here for baptism, and I'll try to keep this relatively short and relatively sweet uh, so that we can celebrate that glorious occasion together. Um, As we've said, today is Christ the King Sunday. It's the last Sunday in the liturgical calendar. It ends the liturgical year. It puts a a period at the end of the sentence. The whole liturgical year is built around the life and the ministry of Jesus. Uh, It begins in Advent in anticipation of the incarnation, and we have the Christmas season, and epiphany where he's revealed to the nation's And then we move through that special time of of Lent where we anticipate His passion, His death, His burial and resurrection, and then Pentecost when He pours out His Spirit. And then we have this season that we've been in called Ordinary Time, which is when we look at the, the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, and we end this liturgical year remembering where Jesus is now. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He not only died, not only was He resurrected, but He ascended he ascended in glory and in victory, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he rules and reigns over history even now. So we end the liturgical year with that reminder that Christ is King. No matter what is going around us, on around us in the world, in our own country, in our own city, in our own hearts, we acknowledge that Jesus is King, that he is ruling and reigning. So Christ the King Sunday ends the liturgical year, but it also anticipates the year to come. The next four weeks, next four Sundays are the four Sundays of Advent. And Advent is a season where we look again to the first coming of Jesus, his incarnation, but we look at that in parallel with the anticipation of his second coming. The confession of the church of the ascended Lord is that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. As the Nicene Creed puts it, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And that is the focus of our gospel passage tonight, Jesus as king, but also as judge. Now, in in our system of government, those are things that we separate. The executive branch is over here and the judicial branch is over here because we understand that we need to have some checks and balances, that if all of that power was coalesced in one person or in one branch of government, things could get out of hand. But in Jesus and in the ancient world, the kings were the judges. Those things were not separated. So this gospel passage is a reminder to us that Jesus, our King, is also the judge. And the sober reminder, and I I say that word in all seriousness, it's a sober reminder that there is such a thing as eternal life, and there is such a thing as eternal death, and that those words come from the very lips of Jesus as a reminder that there is something at stake. And with that sobriety in mind, with the weight of this passage in mind, I want to acknowledge a few things. I want to acknowledge a few things about this passage and passages like it, judgment passages. Acknowledge that they've been used um, in some ways that have not been all that helpful. One way that a passage like this or passages like it has been used is as, as a distraction. That people get wrapped up in the when and the where and the how of the return of Jesus and forget that he is ruling and reigning now and forget the overall import of it. So this passage and others like it have often been used as a distraction. This passage and others like it has also been used as a weapon. And maybe you've experienced it as a weapon. Uh, Christians who put themselves in the place of the judge decide who are the sheep and the goats. They judge others. And in their hypocrisy say, I'm in, you're out. I have this insider knowledge. And maybe you have been on the receiving end of a weaponized version of a passage like this, and it doesn't feel very good. The church, in its history, has also used this passage uh, as a weapon for emotional manipulation, to hang the specter and the shadow of hell over people to manipulate them into deciding to follow Jesus. Maybe not for the best possible reasons. So this passage and others like it have been used as a distraction, as used as a weapon. But interestingly enough, the flip side of that same coin is that this exact passage has been used for license because some people want to make this passage the only thing that Jesus has to say about judgment and forget the rest of the gospel of Matthew and indeed the rest of the gospels and the rest of the New Testament and say, well, if Jesus is only concerned with these things in this passage, then it doesn't matter what I do otherwise as long as I do these things. So my morality doesn't matter, my, what I do, who I am doesn't matter, and what I believe doesn't matter. So it's interesting, you have quite a spectrum of response to passages like this. In light of that, I think we also have to acknowledge that maybe for some of you, judgment, this idea that Jesus will come and judge, that there is such a thing as eternal life and such a thing as eternal death, that that very fact of judgment is perhaps your number one objection to Christianity, the number one stumbling block that you might have. And I hope to address some of that tonight as we look at these scriptures. But the flip side of that coin is to acknowledge that this passage has left in its wake a, a legacy of mercy and mission. Because of this passage, people have gone into the world and done great things because they take seriously what Jesus says here, which is, if you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. I think of some of the great saints of the church, like St. Basil in the fourth century in the, what we would call modern-day Turkey, selling he's a great bishop, great theologian, in the midst of famine, sells a lot of his personal property to make sure that Christians and non-Christians alike are fed. I think of someone like St. Benedict, who is the found, founder of Western monasticism, in the rule of St. Benedict to be a monk means that when someone shows up at your doorstep, you welcome that stranger as if that stranger were Christ. That Saint Benedict takes explicitly what Jesus says. He takes seriously what Jesus says, that when you welcome the stranger, when you welcome the least of these, you are actually welcoming Christ. And I think two of stories within just this congregation, how many of you have traveled overseas to build houses, to dig wells, to feed the hungry, to offer medical help, to preach the good news? How many of you are training to go and do those kinds of things? How many of you have done those things here in Dallas, serving the downtrodden, the refugee, those who are the least of these? So as we acknowledge all of those things, that judgment is a, is a hard topic, but even in the midst of this hard passage, you have this, what has been an amazing motivation for God's people to go be merciful And to go and be on mission. To take seriously what Jesus says here. As you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So, there's so many things that we could talk about with these verses. And there's so many different angles and ways that we come in. And I just want to simply ask a question and try to answer it. One question and use that question to help us walk through this story that Jesus tells about the final judgment. And the question is, can we trust this judge? Can we trust? It's an existential question. Can I put my trust in this one who is judging? Can I put my trust in this one who at the end of all things will divide the sheep from the goats, who will send some into eternal life and some into eternal death? Can I trust him? Because I think that that's the question that's at stake for us. Beyond the times and seasons, beyond the other questions that we could ask of a passage like this, I think that's probably the question that, at least for me, is the forefront of the mind. And it may not surprise you that I'm going to answer the question, yes. So, the surprise will be, how will he answer the question, yes? Stay tuned. So, the passage begins with this verse, verse 31 in Matthew chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. The first reason that we can trust this judge is because of who he is as the Son of Man. We can trust him because he is the Son of Man. What does that mean? What does the Son of Man mean? Well, it's one of the favorite, uh, favorite ways Jesus had of describing himself Um, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, he calls himself often the Son of Man. It's a reference to many places in the Old Testament, but especially to a passage in Daniel chapter 7, where the prophet Daniel has a vision. He says, I had a night vision. And he is looking in this sort of heavenly courtroom, and he says there's this one like the Ancient of Days who we call God, who calls forth this one who Daniel says is like a Son of Man, and he entrusts to this Son of Man dominion over the nations, judgment over the nations. And in Daniel's understanding, and in the Old Testament understanding, and even in the New Testament understanding, this Son of Man was a human being. That God entrusts to a human being dominion and glory and honor and the ability to judge. See, Jesus as the Son of Man is the truly human one. He doesn't judge us apart from him. His humanity. He judges us in the midst of who he is as a human being. So in this moment, he comes as the son of man, like in that vision in Daniel 7, and he comes with all his angels. And, and Matthew wants us to get it. He says he comes in his glory and he sits on his glorious throne. This is a moment of grandeur. It's a moment of revelation. It's a moment of um, in some ways, of a holy fear to see the Son of Man, the truly human one, come in glory and to be surrounded with a heavenly host who stand in his court with him to judge. And before him, just as in Daniel 7, is all, are all the nations, all the peoples of the earth. And then he begins his work of judging. And some you know, would say maybe this is a parable because it uses this language of sheep and goats, but this is not the language of a parable. It's using a metaphor, but it's not a parable itself. It's, it's giving us a story of, of what some aspect of this judgment is going to look like. And we're seeing this image of the judge king is also a shepherd king, because that's a, a popular conception in the ancient world of kings, is that they are also shepherds. And in their context, they would have mixed flocks of goats and sheep, and to the untrained eye, it would be very difficult to tell one from the other. And there's lots of speculation to why a shepherd would separate sheep and goats and has to do with the temperament of goats, and sheep can kind of clump up and warm themselves, but goats need protection. Um, That's kind of neither here nor there, but sort of interesting uh, that there's actually a precedent for a shepherd needing to separate sheep from goats. So it's used as a metaphor here for this understanding that a shepherd in his wisdom is able to tell who's a sheep Who is a goat? And the shepherd king, the shepherd king, who is also judge, in his wisdom is able to tell who is a sheep and who is a goat. So this son of man comes and sits on his glorious throne, this throne of judgment, this throne of deciding, decisive action. And he comes as the truly human one, not as a detached deity to dispel judgment on us, but as one who is also human. So we can trust this judge because he is the Son of Man. We can also trust this judge because of his self-identification, his solidarity with the least of these. And to me, this is, is where the weight, the gravity of the passage is. When these sheep who are called blessed of the Father say, why are we here? Why are we the sheep? And he says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger. I was naked. I was sick. I was in prison. The king himself says, it was I. It was me. I was the one that you served. I was the one who was hungry. I was the one who was thirsty. I was the one who was a stranger. I was the one who was naked. I was the one who was sick. I was the one who was in prison, There is such solidarity between the king and the least of his subjects because his heart is filled with compassion for them. And that's what we see throughout the ministry of Jesus, him seeking out the broken, him seeking out uh, the despondent, the marginalized, and bringing them healing, bringing them life, bringing them hope, bringing them joy. So this judge who is also king, who is also a human has absolute solidarity with, self-identification with the least of these, with the hungry, the thirsty, the estranged, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned. And what kind of king do you know that's like that? In your reading of history or your understanding of even modern-day rulers who most identify themselves with the least of their subjects, who basically say, if you want to see what I look like, go look at them. If you want to go encounter where I am, Go to the least, because when you do it to the least of these, my brothers, you do it unto me. So we can trust this king because he's the son of man. We can trust this king because of his solidarity with the least of these. And we can trust this king because his solidarity doesn't just end with good feelings for the least, but complete and total identification with the least in becoming the least of these, that Jesus himself becomes the least of these, the one who experiences all these things to the greatest effect. In Matthew 26, the chapter just after this passage of judgment, this, there's a transition from Jesus' teaching ministry into the sequence that leads to his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And immediately after he's closed this great discourse on what the end of things is like, he turns to his disciples and he says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So see the contrast. Verse 31 says, the Son of Man will come in glory and sit on his glorious throne. But now, in the here and now, as I stand before you, my disciples, what's going to happen is I'm going to be delivered to death. I'm going to be crucified. And in that crucifixion, we can see Jesus experiencing the ultimate hunger, the ultimate thirst, the ultimate estrangement, the ultimate nakedness, the ultimate sickness, the ultimate imprisonment, bearing the weight of our sin on our behalf, that his solidarity with us doesn't end with the incarnation. It doesn't end with him saying, I'm healing, I'm for the least of these. It ends with him going all the way to death and out the other side on our behalf because of his solidarity with us as his brothers and sisters. Hear again that language, as you did it to the least of these my brothers and sisters. That identification is a familial identification. He says, come into the inheritance of my father. These are not just subjects to this king these are his brothers and sisters and that is why i believe that we can trust this, this king that's why i believe we can trust his judgment even as stark as it seems maybe even as unfair or unjust it might seem to us that there is this division between the sheep and the goats that there are sheep who inherit sheep who inherit the blessing of the father but then there are goats who do not and it was a totally different way for them. So for us, the temptation with something like this passage is to be left with, well, what are the things that I need to do? Well, I need to go make sure that I find a hungry person, a thirsty person, a sick person, a hungry, and work through the list. And I think that that may be part of it, in the sense that this passage has motivated Christian mission and mercy in a very positive way. But this is not the only statement in Matthew or even the whole New Testament about judgment. In Matthew 25 itself, there are two parables that precede the the passage we had tonight. One of the parables is the parable of the unwise virgins. You may know the story. There are these virgins with oil, and they're meant to wait for the bridegroom, and five of them preserve and reserve enough oil for that to happen when the bridegroom comes at midnight and five of them do not, and they are called unwise, and they, when the bridegroom comes, they're not able to follow because they don't have oil in their lamp. And they finally get some oil and they come to, to the place of the wedding feast and they're knocking on the door. And the bridegroom comes, they come to the door and say, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. So in this passage about judgment before us, we have this, how do you treat the least of these? But we also have here in the Virgin's story, do you know him? Does he know you? In the Sermon on the Mount, similarly, Jesus says, on that day, the day of judgment, what we're talking about today, that day when the Son of Man comes in his glory, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Lord, did we not do many mighty works in your name? And probably the most chilling line in the whole New Testament, perhaps the whole Bible, is, depart from me, I never knew you. So undergirding this passage of judgment that is before us is an understanding of relationship, of knowing the king himself, of knowing the God, of having relationship with him, of having faith with him. And I think it's, it's in our passage somewhat. There's a hint of it. Because the king says to the sheep, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. They, this blessed is a passive blessing. It's something that's bestowed upon them. It's something that is received. It's not something that is earned. And I believe the testament of the book of Matthew, the testament of the whole New Testament, is that, yes, we have good works that are prepared for us in advance to do, but we are prepared by grace to do them. Prepared by grace unto good works. The sheep are those who are part of the family of God because they have believed. And they have acted like those who have believed by serving Christ in the least of these so where does that leave us tonight? I think the, the question before us was, can we trust this judge? And maybe I've answered that question to your satisfaction, or perhaps not. And we can talk about that if you'd like. But I think it also leaves us with some other questions. Because I think you might find yourself in sort of one of two positions. One is um, maybe hearing this, hearing that legacy of mission and mercy that this passage has led to in the, in the church is the question before you of how might I go be an ambassador of mercy and mission? How might God be calling me to serve the least of these? And maybe it's simple as a pr- of praying throughout this week of helping, asking God to show you those around you who are the least of these, who need these simple acts of service, food, drink, who need a friend, who need clothing, who need someone to visit them. Simply asking the Lord to show you the least of these. And I think the more, for some of us, there's even the question, as I said, that chilling line, Lord, did we not do these things? And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Do we know him? It's, it's a question that I think we always have to ask come back to you, not as a way to scare ourselves, but just as a check. Do we know him? So what I want to do is, is I want to pray together. And if you wouldn't mind just closing your eyes and bowing your head. I'm going to say a simple prayer, and I'm just going to ask those two questions and trust the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts to stir up what he might be saying through this. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the son of man, that you are the truly human one. We thank you for your solidarity with us and our weakness. And we thank you that that solidarity was not just good feelings or good vibes, but took you to the cross and through death and out the other side. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come now and, and speak to us. as us simply ask these questions how might God be stirring in you to serve the least of these? And then the second question, do I know him and does he know me? Lord God, we trust that you are at work because you promised to be in our midst when we are gathered in your name. And as you have stirred in people's hearts, Lord, I pray that we would respond in faith and in joy and in gratitude for those who might need to say, I don't know him and I want to know him, Lord, to come to talk to us. We ask, Lord, that you would bind these things in our heart and seal them for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.